And that's what intuition is, is those quick choices that you're making without all the conscious information. You might have a lot of unconscious information coming in, but it's not a conscious decision making. It's more of, okay, I need to choose what am I going to choose? And that's what intuition is. And it looks like when you are novices, so when you are really um, new to the to the field, you are not as intuitive and you're using only two parts of the brain mainly. You're using um, the temporal lobe and uh, what is called the frontal lobe. So the um, kind of the parts of the brain that are kind of having through the logical list. Uh, A goes to B, B goes to C, and the kind of the logical steps of if I do this, then this is going to happen. That's what you're using when you're a young person in the field. But the experts, they tend to use multiple, multiple parts of the brain. Today's guest was a treat to interview. This episode is all about intuition, tarot, and the inner workings of our brain. Siddharth Ramakrishnan, PhD, is a neuroscientist and educator with over 20 years of experience. His work explores the developing brains of animals and how brain hormones are influenced by the environment, bioelectronic interfaces, and neuroethics. With a PhD from the University of Illinois and postdoctoral research from UCLA and Columbia University, he serves as the chair and professor of neuroscience at the University of Puget. A fellow of the UCLA Art Sci Center, his collaborations with artists have led to exhibitions and documentaries that blend the worlds of art and science, highlighting topics like hox genes, animal unwelts, and biomimicry. An artist himself, he recently created the Neuro Tarot deck inspired by the major arcana of tarot, but infused with neuroscience concepts. More information can be found in the bio section below. Hello, Sadar. Thank you so much for joining me today. Hi, thanks so much for having me. Yes, I was reading your About Me section, and what I took away from it is how excited you are about the brain in general, about uh, neuroscience altogether. So can you tell me what your journey was to neuroscience? What was it that awoke your exploration, your excitement towards it? Well, I don't tell people this much, but I... um... Once upon a time, I used to be a computer science person, (laughs) and then uh, that's what I did my undergrad in. Um, But uh, I came to the U.S. to, because in India, it's very difficult to switch paths. So I came to the U.S. to, because I knew this wasn't the the journey for me. And then I told, uh, took some animal behavior courses where we went, went out into the fields and we used to watch wolves mating and prairie chickens like dancing around and I was completely in love so we used to watch the animals behave in the field and we'll go back to the lab and look at their brains and um, so that's kind of what drove me into neuroscience I really wanted to learn about okay how do animals behave why do they do what they do and I've never looked back after that I don't tell people I have a computer science background Oh, I feel so special that you let us hear that because that is something, I mean, a lot of us, I think, start out in one area and then, you know, you're you're awakened to another area and you want to switch. So the fact that you got to and you were, you know, it was there for you is, is amazing. That's awesome. Yeah, it's, uh, yeah, it's, it's, uh, 
I think it's still useful to go discover those paths. Uh, but I'm glad I was lucky enough to to find something that I really loved. Yeah. That's so great. So can you explain to us the study and practice of neuroscience just for anybody who's not really as familiar with it? So a, a lot of my work actually involves small animals. So I mainly look at snail brains and fish brains and cockroach brains and things like that. Um, the reason that's still valid is because when you really go down to the nitty gritty of individual neurons, um, all creatures are the same. We have the same chemistry and physics and biology, which helps us um, send signals, send uh, information from one place to the other. And snails have to walk, snails have to eat. And so a lot of those basic systems are, are pretty much the same, whether it's uh, in a small animal or a large animal. Um, I think that the field of neuroscience initially started with uh, almost like a naturalist uh, field where people went out and wanted to know more about, okay, what does this animal think and how does it behave? I think over time it's become more just like everything else, industrialized, where it's more about, okay, how does this animal going to help me learn about human diseases and things like that? So I hope that we kind of move back into that realm of learning animals and their thoughts just for the sake of it, as opposed to using them as tools. Um, but uh, but yeah, and uh, and then even consciousness studies, when you're thinking about the, the larger human picture, um, even that now is now going into to our octopus conscious or elephants conscious and things like that. And I think that um, now is a very exciting time in neuroscience because finally we've moved from, till, till now, a lot of the ways in which we are understanding brains and neurons is uh, recording from one or two or maybe four or five cells. But now we are, have the capacity to image like the whole brain and how is everything connected to everything. So we're moving to that next level of analyzing the whole brain as opposed to individual bits and pieces. And especially with things like consciousness and those large questions, I don't think you can reduce them to those little nuts and bolts. You have to really think about that, that big holistic uh, environment of the brain itself. And I think we are approaching that in the next level and probably in the next couple of decades we'll be there. Wow. So would you say that the um, original mindset or the previous mindset was that there is a left brain and a right brain and they don't actually like, well, if they talk to each other, they're not necessarily working together. But now we realize all of the parts of the brain work at, at once, right? In tandem. Yeah, I think the left brain, right brain, I think all of us use both parts of the brain. Maybe there's some, uh, there's been some uh, uh, evidence of gender gender differences that uh, women tend might tend to use both parts of their brain more effectively than men. It's more about how you use them um, at, at in for different purposes. But I don't think there's a right right brain or a left brain individual. I think we we tend to use both both uh, parts of the brain pretty pretty much. What could be different is more uh, some some centers like the language centers are are located in one part of the brain, and so for you to unconsciously think about certain things and then verbalize them and then consciously think about them, I think that's where some the two different parts of the brain need to get connected a little bit more. So sometimes you might you might be in the shower and you'll be like, "Oh, I that's what happened." So you kind of 
that that unconscious thing kind of comes percolates up and then you become aware that you knew something and that's where the unconscious side of the brain is kind of talking to the conscious side and that that uh, in that some uh, left right asymmetry comes into the picture that's a great way of looking at it because that is especially in the shower that's how a lot of us come to our uh, greatest uh, ideas innovation um, realizations is is at least being in a, a comfortable space to allow access to that more unconscious realm of patterns, symbology, emotions, and now I can bring it to a language and express it, even if it's, you know, just expressing it still in my mind, maybe not to somebody else, but it's just sort of coming to some resolution. So what do you do on a daily basis? You say you work with smaller animals and and you look at the brain, like, what do you do? Do you do you scan them? Do you, I, I think I, I read that you poke them sometimes. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so I, uh, I used to work on fish, uh, but now I work on snails, which I started my um, training with. Snail brains look like bikini tops, <laughs> uh, tiny, tiny bikinis, but they look like little bikini tops with <laughs> with little polka dots on them. And each polka dot um, is actually one single neuron. Um, so you can really um, kind of understand what that particular neuron is doing when the snail is uh, behaving or doing certain activities. So currently my research, I've been, um, for the last couple of, um, I would say decades, I've been working on how plastics affect the brain development and animal physiology. So we all know we are constantly exposed to plastic. So I don't look at how, um, how much of it kills somebody, but I'm rather looking at how this chronic constant exposure to low levels of plastic how is it affecting um, development how is it affecting across uh, across generations and things like that and for that small animal models are great because you can make them reproduce you can like have them like generate like many generations of of uh, of creatures and look at how exposing one um, animal can cause this downstream effect so uh, snails within their uh, embryos, they uh, spin, they kind of do this rotational movement. Um, I actually compared that with the spinning of whirling dervishes. It's really beautiful. It's like this, um, it's this constant rotation. And for that, they need some uh, brain activity, kind of neural activity in order to cause that spin. And what we've seen is the plastic slow down the spin rate, which means they're not able to get as many nutrients or as many uh, or as much oxygen. So, so I'm right now studying how is that control? So how is the plastic affecting that spin rate? How, how is it affecting neurons that are controlling the spin rate? The other thing that happens is when you expose snails from development to plastics, they uh, are become what is called super feminized. So they have uh, multiple vaginal folds and um, they also have bigger um, uh, egg whites almost. Um, so the question is, if they have multiple vaginal folds, does it mean they have brain connection to that extra muscle that they are creating? Or is it just like a fat like a you know bigger bigger uh, muscle mass so i'm trying to see if there's actual brain talk from the brain to that particular uh, organ or is it just uh, just a enlarged organ is kind of what i'm looking at that is so interesting. It's so detailed. And with like just polka dots to work with, it must, it must feel like you're able to really hone in, like really understand like the ABCs almost maybe of, of the, the building blocks of all of us, you know? 
Yeah, we have like millions and millions of neurons, whereas snails more are on the order of thousands. So it's just easier to to say, okay, this does that, and have a direct one to one connection and look at it as opposed to in humans. That's amazing. So now let's get a little into tarot because there's a lot of questions I think tarot readers who just start out want to know that. A lot of us are, you know, able to communicate to them, but we don't know the brain the way you know the brain. And one of those main questions is about intuition and how the brain maybe um, forms intuition or comes to an intuitive response. Can you tell me a little bit about how a neuroscientist looks at intuition? Yeah, this is something I've been really exploring because a lot of times people like tarot readers are just dismissed because it's all considered this woo-woo thing. Which, But then if you look at the science literature, uh, there's been actually a lot of uh, research that's gone into intuition. Uh, mainly it's with respect to doctors, uh, surgeons, athletes, uh, other game players. That's where most of the intuitive questions have been raised. Um, doctors, because um, especially doctors who are experts, they just know when they look at you, they, they are kind of taking in all these different cues, maybe your skin color, your, your fingernail, they're taking in all these little, little bits and pieces. And then they say, it's most likely this is what's happening with you. Or when you're a surgeon, and you are actively in the surgery, sometimes it's not what you planned. Things might go wrong or things might be different. And then you then have to make those quick, very quick decisions, which are life, um, uh, life-saving. And a lot of them are not like, if I do this, then I do that. Because if you start thinking that way in the middle of a surgery, you will lose time and you will not be able to perform properly. It's more of those really quick, intuitive decision making that that needs to happen. And that's what intuition is, is those quick choices that you're making without all the conscious information. You might have a lot of unconscious information coming in, but it's not a conscious decision making. It's more of, okay, I need to choose what am I going to choose? And that's what intuition is. And it looks like when you are novices, so when you are really um, new to the to the field, you are not as intuitive and you're using only two parts of the brain mainly. You're using um, the temporal lobe and uh, what is called the frontal lobe. So the um, kind of the parts of the brain that are kind of having through the logical list. Uh, A goes to B, B goes to C, and the kind of the logical steps of if I do this, then this is going to happen. That's what you're using when you're a young person in the field. But the experts, they tend to use multiple, multiple parts of the brain. It almost looks like they're using, the main part of the brain they're using is a region called the caudate nucleus. And um, so the idea is that they're integrating um, all everything, including the um, unconscious cues that are coming in. And um, what's been found is the, uh, it's almost 10 seconds faster, um, the expert intuitive um, decision making, as opposed to the, uh, the one that's coming through the logical uh, steps, basically. And the, the one thing to say is intuitive decisions are not always the right ones. Right, intuitive decisions are not always the right ones. It's at the moment you're making those intuitive decisions, it's going to give you what is called as a sense of cognitive ease. So you're feeling, okay, I made my decision. This is it, or this is it. I'm sure this is the right answer to this question. So 
um, at that moment in time, it gives you that feeling of, um, okay, I'm done. I made my decision. This is the prob- This is the right one. And then you go through what is called as reflective steps of, um, okay, what did I do? Why did I make this choice? And that then brings about what is called an insight, saying, oh, that's why I made that decision. And then you might say, oh, that was a wrong decision or that was the right one. But the insight is how you're training your intuitive mind to the next time you face a similar situation, you know, like immediately, like which which choice to make. So um, the insight is coming later on from a more reflective part of your brain. I love that because I think that you know, as a baby tarot reader or anybody who's trying to do that as a living, any intu- like wholly intuitive, you know, process as a living is so afraid of making mistakes because then it's like, who are you? Are you really capable of this? And I teach tarot by having everyone look at it like a piano and you, you've got to plunk through it. You've got to do the scales. You've got to, you know, you've got to make mistakes so that you know how to correct those mistakes. And then it does, it kind of folds in on itself over time. And then you may not have to think about it again. But as you get better and better, you can do freeform, you know, freeform jazz or free freestyle. And that's where you really get to see yourself shine like an expert, like you said. But I think it is so important that you that you mentioned that mistakes are not only inevitable, but important, right? That you have to make those mistakes. Yeah, definitely. And we've all been there. Like the first time you pick up a tarot deck, you look through the notebook, you're like, you know, flipping through the pages, you have to like, oh, what is the meaning of this? And then, and then after some time, the notebook is kind of almost set aside and the images are kind of what is speaking to you, or you kind of get these different flashes. And then you're making those connections from there. And, and I think that's where the expertise starts coming in. They're saying, you know what, Um, I know that the notebook is saying this thing, but this is what this this story is the narrative is at this point that's what i'm going through and this also similar in in athletes you talk about how you know there's this old athlete who's like at the end of their air their the thing but then, then this new guy comes in who is like playing really phenomenal but the the instincts and the intuition of the the expert sometimes helps them win because they know they can anticipate you know where the ball is going to go they can anticipate like how how the thing is going to unfold and um and i think that's kind of where uh, as you said we shouldn't be afraid of making those mistakes and and going back and and learning from them and and kind of feeding into that intuitive process again and again and uh, it almost seems like the intuitive process is in that subconscious level and then it is important for us to reflect back on it so that it kind of some of those bubbles come up and you can then say okay i i did th- i did that because of all these these things that i that i noticed or something like that so no that makes so much sense and on top of that like so what would you say because you brought up the subconscious when somebody's trying to tap into their intuition and they're they're going to the subconscious or that's what they're imagining they're going to. I don't know if you can like actually see in there because it's supposed to be the darkness, right? Um, what exactly is it that's being brought up? Can it be it can be anything like symbols, words, thoughts, just anything like allowing yourself to just sort of let anything bubble up kind of thing or it's it's very interesting you're bringing this up because um, I've been working on a book uh, for Llewellyn Press and um, it's uh, <laughs> supposed to be submitted in August and it's on the neuroscience of divination and a big chapter of that is uh, intuition and intuitive processes and I've been going through a series of exercises that I'm hoping to give people and one of them is um, 
just you know can i pick out a card yes <laughs> yeah, please can, yeah so um if if i just pick out a card um card randomly let's say this is the card i, I i'm picking out um and almost what do you notice the first or write down what you notice first about the card and then uh, what is your eye drawn to um and then maybe pick the same leave the card out or or set it aside and then look at it the next day and try and identify like pieces that you didn't notice notice before and then start really thinking about okay why did i notice this yesterday and why did i notice this today are there any emotional internal states that's also been changed or am i always biased and looking at just that one thing um so these are all some of the things that we need to kind of almost check just like we say check our biases we actually need to check uh, like what are we observing and what is what are the eye drawn to because what what scientists have been finding is that this is not um when you're when you're looking at an object different people notice very different things and it's actually cultural how you're raised what kind of environments you're brought up in and we also sometimes even using different parts of the brain to parse all this out and so what they found is um a lot of people trained in the west tend to notice things in the foreground uh way more whereas people who are trained on the east uh, like in japan tend to notice backgrounds way more so just in the first 5 seconds of you know uh of looking at an, at at something and so when you're thinking about training your intuition it might be interesting that um unconsciously your brain might be looking at those those other things but then your immediate conscious reaction might be like you know i'm seeing the cup or i'm seeing the horse or something like that so maybe try and figure out okay what are you noticing what are you leaving out and if you start looking at that whole picture will it will it change the way you you approach this particular card or interpretation is something that me 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 might want to start thinking about i that's so enlightening because i think i've read that before but it's like oh, i'm so analytical and i'm like oh i'm just going to go to like the the words about it and the definitions about it cuz i just didn't understand what uh for me the importance of you know looking at the card cuz i'll use so many different decks and now i i get it but when i was first starting out i was like i just pushed it away but you're right every deck has a different um expression of that specific card and then the things that that person chose to put in there can assist you and like you said culturally to look at what it is that your eye will naturally go to and it's so funny maybe we're on a, a little intuitive wave right now because you just answered another question i had which was the, to advise how to advise someone to um allow their intuition to speak better to them. And so I I think that's a perfect example, but moving on from there, it's like how um how can we improve it? How can we improve our intuition in general? Like what's a way that we can just allow ourselves? Is it meditation? Is it noticing um something every day as we're walking around? Is it what would you say would just improve intuition overall? Um Yeah so this uh, one one thing we already spoke about was um after a reading or after um uh after uh, even if you just say pull out a few cards a day and then kind of write write down what you think those interpretations are 
um, is to have that reflection journaling piece of, okay, why? Why did I do this? And then, um, because that is then going to set into, okay, I noticed these things or um, even like, I, I would even say when you say about meditation, so some people before they start any kind of tarot practice, they kind of ground themselves or have a certain ritual before they start with the whole uh, reading session, say. And um, again, that I would say is really important because what they have now found is that emo- a lot of times you're attaching emotional balances to some of these these questions. And uh, the emotion is not coming from your head, but it's coming from your body. Um, so when your heart is beating faster or when your stomach is clenched, your brain is then interpreting that as I'm feeling anxious or I'm feeling like, you know, um, tired or something like that. So or your brain is actually interpreting your body signals. So you really need to step back and kind of calm yourself down and um, before you get into that, that um, awareness state of, of the intuition. So I would really say reflective journals are going to be really important. Um, the other thing is um, just having some uh, means of, um, uh, if, if I pull two cards, um, try and see if uh, you are constantly going back to the same interpretation again and again, and then seeing if that's not the right one, right? Because sometimes we are, uh, we might have had a trauma or or, or maybe this has uh, been a pattern that's repeated itself and maybe now it's time to get out of that pattern. Maybe it's time to get out of that cycle. So, um, so if there's a card that's constantly giving you, you're constantly like going to the same exact meaning each time, maybe kind of think back to see, okay, why am I going back to that thing? Is that relevant in this case? So um, having that kind of a, a, a question process, I think is, is also going to be uh, important. Um, and then the other one is to, again, become aware of your own um, relational biases. So um, I was just pulling out some cards yesterday. Um, um, and so let's, let me just pull out two cards and let's see. Let's see what happens. Um, let's see. So um, if I'm pulling out the Eight of Pentacles and the Four of Cups, and um, you can ask, like, what is the, the relation between these two cards or what, what is the pattern that, that you're recognizing in these two cards? And it could be that um, you're noticing um, this person looking down. In, 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 in my image, image here, there's a person looking down on the... Uh, um, and not seeing the, the gift in front of them in the Four of Cups, and the other person is like working hard to polish uh, the Eight of Pentacles. Um, but someone else, uh, so but both the, both the figures are looking down and and not at not away from them. So almost like an internal um, looking down aspect of things. So that's what I'm noticing here. But you might have a very different uh, thing that you're, you're noticing in this particular picture. So how are you kind of forming those relations between images is also something that I've been asking people to work on to kind of think about what is your relationality? Um, how How is the narrative moving from one card to the other? How What, what elements are you using to match things up because ultimately a card reading is a storytelling you're forming this through line narrative so how are you moving from 
this point A to this point B, what is the what is causing you to jump from A to B? That's where that 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 that's where that intuition lies, right? That's that little space where you're jumping from point A to point B. So what is causing you to make that jump? Um, again, this is not to say that um, I I don't want people to feel everything has to be this analytical process, as you said, but having that piece of reflection will then help the next time. Next time, you, you do your freeform reading when you first look at it, but then just step back and say, okay, why did I do this? I think that's really going to be really important. And, you know, I think that exactly what you're saying is, is an affirmation for people, because I think that my overanalyzation comes from the definitions, you know, and you're talking about getting into a relationship with your own cards. And I think a lot of us get too scared to do that because we we don't want to be seen as woo-woo. We want to be seen as being taken seriously. So we're going to learn everything there is about the card, you know, and it gets very in your head. And so having the permission from someone who is working with the brain to let that go and just, you know, build that relationship with your cards, build the, um, your relationship with your own biases, you said, uh, with your body, right? I actually, something that I have to do better probably is, is um, an eating regimen throughout the day. Cause I'll get a lot of readings in a day. And if I don't eat at a certain time, I'm too full and I don't like that feeling or I'm too hungry and I don't like that feeling. Something is um, taking my brain's attention, right? And, and because of that, I didn't even think of it the way that you said it. So it actually makes sense because I've been like, you know, you you need to exercise in the morning. You need to get certain things out so that everything's as balanced as possible. Meditate to ground yourself so that your your brain isn't um, interpreting things that are not necessarily to do with the reading. So that gives another affirmation of why there's so much that goes into tarot reading that's even beyond the cards themselves, you know, th- this is about you, uh, you know, getting in touch with your own intuition, your body, it happens in your body. Uh, when I talk to people about meditation, a lot of times p- people don't realize the grounding process is getting into your body. You know, people think meditation sometimes is crawling out of your body and it's like, no, you're already crawled out of your body. <laughs> you need to get into your body because that's where all the vibrations happen. That's where your brain is sitting is inside of your body. You know, all of this stuff is is what is cre- what is causing the intuition to happen. You are the in- in- the antenna, the intuitive antenna. So that makes so much sense. Let's... um. I want to know now what what brought you to tarot. This is like it's so fascinating. I I mean I figured you were um, super into tarot as well since you created a deck, but you're even showing me uh, cards from a deck that's not your deck. I don't th- is that your deck there that you're showing? Me? Yeah. So you, what brought you to tarot? What what was this journey? Um, uh, I think about twenty years ago when I was when I first moved to the, this country, my sister already lived here. So she kind of sent me a, a tarot deck and we used to kind of do readings for each other uh, while watching the Gilmore Girls. Yes, I love <laughs> it. I, I love this. <laughs> I'm, date, I'm dating myself, but that's kind of how it happened. <laughs> and uh, and yeah, so uh, at that point, I, I was doing it more, more to um, get answers. As an Indian who is Hindu... Um, I don't have that disconnect between science and mysticism because it was kind of always integrated. We we had an altar at home. We prayed. I went to a school where we had to kind of do homage to the fire every weekend. So um, we always had to go through those things. And then um, my dad is a surgeon, but my mom uh, used to consult astrologers. So astrology was kind of part of 
you know, growing up. So um, never had that disconnect between science and, and, and mysticism. So when tarot came up, I really enjoyed it because it was... Um, it was giving me this this toolkit almost to to kind of understand a little bit more about myself or people around me and and then i as i did more i delved more into the brain i was just starting to think of like what's going on like why why are we interpreting these things like what's what what's really the process because it's ultimately it's just it's a piece of card right it's a it's an image which is two dimensional on a card, but somehow that's making us like create all these um, intuitive leaps or having how create these stories. And then I realized, you know, most of the questions we ask are either about behavioral choices, emotional connections, or, um, you know, uh, or, or like what's going to happen to me. So, or the self or the self. And all these are related to the brain, like, and, and, you know, and so I was like, okay, well, you know, I really need to like know more about like what's going on in our heads when we're doing this. And that's kind of how I started diving a little bit more into the research of tarot and, and looking into that. So when you were designing these cards... Did you use, I don't have them in front of me. I, I thought they were out of stock, but they're not out of stock. I'm, I'm buying them. Um, so anybody listening, buy these cards. They are so cool. So I'm really asking you uh, blind, you know, uh, so I haven't really seen many of them. But when you were creating these cards, are every single one of them dedicated to a different part of the brain or dedicated to a different function of the brain? Yeah, right now it's only the minor, major arcana. I don't have the minor arcana. I'm still working on the minor arcana. Um, but yeah, so I looked at the major arcana and then I was thinking if um, from a neuroscience angle, like what, what is this going to be? And so it, it either talks about a different part of the brain or a different um, phenomenon uh, in the brain and, and using the tarot uh, meaning as, as, the, as the diving point. So kind of each card, um, uh, I'm just showing you the first, uh, the fool card. Um, this one is talks about beginnings, which is kind of what um, the fool some, sometimes represents. And then at the bottom of it, it talks about um, new, new relation, which is kind of the, the process by which your neurons initially kind of group together to form uh, the brain and the spinal cord. And the reason I like that is because um, there's so much potential there. The brain is not formed. The animal is not formed. It can be anything. So many things can go right. So many things can go wrong. There can be like a huge array of, of things need to happen. And similarly, the fool is embarking on this journey where um, so many things can happen. There's so much potential that's right in front of them. So um, kind of I like the, the, that juxtaposition of, of both. And then, um, and then, kind of the the book kind. Uh, there's a little booklet that comes with it, which talks about the neuroscience and the tarot meanings, and and how you can interpret it one way or the other. Um, so it, I had a lot of fun working on this because this, it really allowed me to think about different approaches to this particular deck. I love it. I think it's great, especially because. Um... You know, if you really want to break up your practice, you can take other decks and use them with other decks. So let's say, you know, if I was using, I don't know, the Rider weight, and I pulled out a King of Wands, and I wanted to know more about what was going on, you know, mentally, or um, what they were dealing with developmentally, behaviorally, 
I might go to your major arcana and, you know, pull a card that would go next to this King of Wands as well. So I feel like it could, especially when you finish the rest of them, it's definitely a standalone deck. And the majors are a standalone deck on their own, but it would be even really cool to see with, you know, in tandem with other things. Do you feel like that would be interesting for you to see, uh, you know, both of them side by side if you were to pull one and then the other? Yeah, I, I've been using using it that way, especially when people ask um, questions about, um, like, why am I being stuck? Like, what what is what is holding back? Um, so I I feel like this particular deck helps me with with those things because it kind of gives them a, a different approach to almost changing systems and then kind of removing that blockage from the systems. I feel like that that directionality is there a little bit. So. So since you don't have the minors, do you mind if we walk through some things and just out of curiosity, what you, how you would see something like, let's say the suit of wands, what would you say, you know, in the nervous system or the brain, what, what's the inspiration for the suit of wands? Um, I started working on the cups actually. So it's going to be, um, okay. uh, the suits are going to be like mollusks, um, birds, insects, and mammals. It's kind of how it's going to go. And um, the mollusks are going to be, um, so each each aspect of it is going to be a different uh, aspect of molluscan behavior and, and the brain. Um, so the first one is going to be almost uh, co- the cornucopia, like that, that full shell, the, uh, the, ace, uh, the ace of cups, say. And then uh, it kind of talks a little bit about the um, the intricacies of shell formation. So how much energy and effort is re- required to make that 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 shell, um, which is then going to give you the bounty as well. So it's kind of a very different take on it. And then similarly, um, there the uh, there's one on um, astivation. So snails uh, uh, when they uh, when winter comes, they just kind of almost hibernate they kind of crawl out of the water and they they just dry up and hibernate and so i think uh i, th- I don't remember the four of uh four of cups so the five of cups one of them is about like just waiting and and just like you know just just hold off and wait so those are the kinds of things i've been working on so um i'm really excited about it that's amazing. So many of us speak animal language. There's so many people so clued in or keyed into the animal world that it, it's so much of a help to them to read if there's more animal figures there than necessarily human figures. So each card is going to have a different animal on it, or is each suit going to have its own like uh, evolution of one animal? So... Um, the reason I picked, so the mollusks, so the cups was like almost like water, uh, the elements as well. So the water, air, uh, fire and earth. And so I was kind of going with the, the mammals and different animals from the mammalian kingdom in the earth, in the earthiness aspect of things. And then in the air, I was going to use all the apes and all the, all the birds in it. Um, so um, there's been a lot of... Um, behavioral neuroscience done on all these different creatures and then the the insects will be the fire uh, fire aspect of things why did you choose insects as the as the fire i'm just curious what was the uh what's their behavior or their you know what is it about them that makes them fire yeah um i was mainly looking at um the the burrowing aspect of things and the the the, the uh, 
a lot of them actually are pretty resistant to to the flames and or or almost need to um uh, to kind of come out of the flames in order to the metamorphosis of especially of insects is almost like coming through that um the trial in order to kind of come out and become this new embodied creature a lot of insects do that so um that is something that i was thinking about when i was thinking about the insects so and and bringing in those kinds of um symbology into it is something that i've been trying to work on that's great because yeah fire is so transformative we do cha- we change under the embers of fire the, the phoenix and that's in- that's incredible i didn't even think about that because a lot of us probably just think about a butterfly and that's you know oh well that's the and that's the only process that's the only metamor- metamorphosis and it's not Obviously, moths do it as well. Or what? What are some of the other insects that do that? Pretty like uh, even like beetles and things like that have those uh, larval stages, and then they can morph the the morphing stages. So some of that exists. So uh, different insects have those metamorphosis processes that are there. They might not be as dramatic. As as you say, the butterfly, but um, they do have those those significant changes that 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 that, that occur. And the interesting bits is that um, even in like say lobsters, they found that the same six there are like these six neurons that help like a, a baby lobster eat and a, a, an adult lobster eat. But what a baby lobster eats is very different than what an adult lobster eats. So the six neurons work in conjunction in the baby lobster to kind of uh, digest the the food whereas in the adults they kind of split and one set work on crunching the food and the other set works on digesting it so it's the same three which has now been juxtaposed so i could now start thinking about okay in the deck what would be something that would kind of translate into that phenomenon is kind of what i'll start thinking about so i love that you're also coming from the animal behavior into the deck instead of trying to find something from the, like, what would be the animal for this one card? And that like, that really shows how much it's about the animal kingdom and how the animal kingdom can teach us something. And these 78 cards bring that to life for us as we divine. That's amazing. So what would you, so with the court cards then, how do you, is that, would you jump over to humans or are there specific animals you have in mind for the court cards or yeah i mean for at least for the mollusks i've been mainly thinking about octopus because they are like the kind of the octopus and the squid that like the the giants of the molluscan kingdom and they are at that realm of consciousness and that that we are, we are already talking about or in 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 the bird birds it would be things like crows and stuff which are like amazing amazing creatures so that's what i've been like thinking about for the court cards oh amazing so maybe like dolphins or the the the, um animals that have yeah that kind of almost Mm -hmm. rival us you know Mm -hmm. like they just don't have the material ability to to shop (laughs) right but Yeah. yeah there's so many animals that have just as as um i mean well a dolphin's brain is way bigger than ours does it have the same amount of neuronal path i know it's like yeah, yeah. that they that's what they think they don't know, know completely but they think if you look at the body brain ratio and uh, the the convolutions that we see though the convolutions are a little um misleading because they found that um in, in birds the brain is super smooth 
but they still think that they are they are they have as much especially in crows they think they have as many capabilities as um, as us they can make tools they can they have funeral services so they have all these abilities they're just using different parts of the brain to do it so they didn't they don't use those we have those folds in the brain but they just don't use them as um, as much so they use a different parts of the brain to kind of handle a lot of these social abilities and uh, that we also have yeah i've heard wolves also have uh, their own burial or their own funeral rituals or what they do. Like a lot of animals, I think, have that. Is that fair? I, f- I feel like I've heard that quite a bit. Yeah, I mean, I, I don't know what wolves, I do know that elephants do. And what they recently found is in India, especially, they found that these, there's an, they kind of created an elephant corridor for elephants to cross and they just would not cross a particular region. And then they found that Historically, around 800 AD, there was a big battle where uh, thousands of elephants were killed in that one spot, and so the elephants just would not. Oh my goodness! So they they knew they they had this weird like memory of that that battle that they would not like go go into that location. So. Wow, you know that's okay. Well, this is one that actually brought up a question I have actually about intuition because of. Uh, this idea of it being an echo from so long ago. Do you feel that intuition is, uh, you know, something that comes up from an ancient kind of background or is it more associative? Because seeing something like that, you have an intuition from 800 AD. <laughs> Do you find that that when we tap into something, we're actually probably tapping into something that's that's even longer or, or longer in, uh, in, I guess, history, in our, our human history than we realize? That's a good question. I think about like a word. I've been thinking a lot about a word like karma, right? Where people talk about karma, and in Indian senses, a lot of people will will think of karma as you know acts in your past life that are now um, causing you to have certain debts, which you're then repaying in your present life. And um, there's a different way to look at karma, which is. Listen to the second half of our conversation where we continue the discussion of karma, understand Hox genes, and explore a few of Siddharth's tarot cards where he draws parallels between functions of the brain and the Wheel of Fortune, the Empress, the Tower, and more. If you'd like to hear the rest of this episode, you can stream it using the link below. If you'd like to listen to all full episodes, past, present, and future, Receive monthly readings, discounts on tarot readings from me, participate in exclusive giveaways, and more. Join the Aquarium Plus for only $5 a month. Thank you so much for spending your time with me, and I hope to see you at the next episode. Blessed be. Blessed be.